Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, etc., and welcome to episode 7 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a retro game I used to play back when I was younger, or maybe a modern game I've played recently. If this is your first time exploring the Retro Wildlands with me, please allow me to extend a warm welcome and thank you for checking us out. We have empty seats all around the campfire, just not those small ones over there. Those ones are for the dogs. Dee Dee will have my ass if somebody sits in his chair. And a warm welcome to all the returning Wildlanders. It's great to hang out with all of you again. On today's episode, we're going to talk about one of the games that has solidified its place as one of my all-time favorites. In 1996, the genre of survival horror was born with the release of Resident Evil on the PlayStation. It was a -a one-of-a-kind experience, but I often remember it as more of a B-movie kind of horror experience. The voice acting was terrible, the story and events were a little campy, jump scares were just one-time events. Now, Now, don't get me wrong, Resident Evil was a scary game, especially back in the day. The music was dark and foreboding, and even when no music was playing at all, you felt just that thick tension in the air. It will always be one of my favorites. A side note, Resident Evil was covered on the Retro Wildlands back on our first episode, so if you want to take a listen to that and gather my thoughts and a little bit of memory sprinkled in, you can give that one a listen too, so is that shamelessly plugging my own podcast? Yes, yes it is, and we're running with it. But today, we're going to be fast-forwarding to 1999 and dive into another survival horror title. This one arguably changed the game, though, and I'm of course talking about Silent Hill. While Resident Evil had that campy sort of horror vibe, Silent Hill changed the formula up in a very interesting way. While Silent Hill had monsters and other in-your-face scares, Silent Hill excelled at psychological, atmospheric horror. The game was much more wide open and ambient, lighting effects were used masterfully for the time, and most of us probably know of Silent Hill's signature fog that hides so much within. Resident Evil gave the player a clear objective as to why they were playing the game and what your goals were, but Silent Hill is much more ambiguous. You play as Harry Mason and your goal is to locate your lost daughter Cheryl, but that is all you know. Everything else happening around you is a mystery, and when things start changing before your eyes, you start to question what's real and what's not real. Are you the only sane person in this town, or are you slowly going crazy like everybody else? Some of my favorite gaming memories came when I played this game for the very first time. I haven't played Silent Hill since it originally released way back when, and I honestly can say, though, it still holds up today, which was a wonderful delight to me. I don't feverishly seek them out, but I love scary, tense video games. I don't know what it is, but I love sinking into the experience and feeling my heart rate climb. I love that feeling of being on edge. But it's not just for the sake of being scared. I love being immersed into a story or a big mystery. Discovering clues or finding ways to progress forward despite the dangers all around me. Games like Silent Hill, Resident Evil of course, but... Some others for me include the Outlast games, Until Dawn on the PlayStation 4, and even The Last of Us fits the bill in some spots. Oh, Dead Space was a great one too. All of those are going to get episodes somewhere down the road too, by the way. That is guaranteed. Oh, and the Dark Pictures Anthology games. 
These were developed by Supermassive Games, the same developer behind Until Dawn. I need to get on those too, I think. Ooh, it just gives me chills thinking about all these games. Plus, there are other horror games I haven't even played yet that I really want to try. I haven't played any of the Fatal Frame games, and I'm really curious about those. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of Japanese-centric horror, or horror that's very centric around ghosts and spirits, but I think it's more so because I haven't given it a fair chance, so, so I'm hoping the right Fatal Frame game hits that spot for me. The most recent one that I'm aware of is Fatal Frame Maiden of Blackwater, and I'm considering giving it a go if I can catch it on a sale or something. Other than my daughter, I don't really have anyone to share scary games with. I remember when I was playing through Until Dawn, my wife would retreat into our bedroom for the evening. She's not a big fan of anything suspenseful, but eventually I guilt-tripped her into watching me play it because I was in love with the story and the presentation, but I almost killed her by making her suffer through the suspense and all the jump scares. Just so you're aware, sweetheart, I am truly, truly sorry. But you did make me happy that day. Before we take this journey into the town of Silent Hill, I wanted to talk about spoilers real quick. Much of what I want to talk about will spoil a bit of the game, some of the jump scares, and some of the other bits and pieces of the game itself proper, and I really think you should experience this game blind if you've never played this game before. So while I understand the game is over 20 years old at this point, I'm going to keep anything I'd consider a spoiler towards the end of the podcast. I will say that I will give ample warning when that happens, so if you want to bail out and not get anything spoiled for you, I will definitely warn you well ahead of time. What story I will talk about in the beginning are things that happen in the first few minutes of the game, and I'll focus more so on the gameplay elements before really diving in deep. And again, you'll get ample warning if you want to bail before any of the spoiler stuff happens. A hefty fog has rolled into the wildlands today, and it's perfect weather to share some stories about this game. Now before that, I'd like to give you all a look behind the curtain so you can see what it is I'm working on, what's potentially coming up on the show, and maybe what I'm playing right now. If none of this interests you though, not a problem. Just skip ahead about 5-7 minutes and you'll get to the Silent Hill talk. The podcast is still in its infancy, but I am learning a lot, which is awesome. I did run into my first real snag this week when producing the show. Most of the episodes I've been recording are some pretty short games that I've already played and that I could replay pretty quick to refresh myself, or games that I've replayed recently. Castlevania was the one exception because I decided to play the game on a whim and I liked it so much I wanted to record an episode about it. Now with Silent Hill though, I definitely bit off a lot more than I could chew. I wanted to replay the game to make sure I hit everything I wanted to talk about in an episode since I haven't played the game in over 20 years. I didn't think it would be hard putting in some game time, but this last week was a busy one for me personally. I also had a project for work this week that ate my Tuesday and Wednesday mornings, and right now, those are the two days I tend to devote to recording the main part of the show, editing it and posting it. So for the first time so far, I really felt rushed to get this episode out. Now don't worry, everything worked out and I'm pretty happy with this episode overall. It just made me step back and think about how to avoid this again in the future. While I want to focus this show around the games that I've played growing up and share some memories along with my thoughts on a game, I really enjoyed exploring my collection and finally playing a game I never made time to, the example being Castlevania. I like talking about it from an old man's perspective, having no preconceived notions or anything like that. It felt like I was truly roaming the desolate wild lands and I had myself a good old-fashioned adventure. And I want to do that more often going forward. So I'm thinking of adapting a new approach. A game like Silent Hill was like a nice steak I needed to take my time with. 
It wasn't the thickest steak or anything, but I needed some time to work on it, a little time to savor it. Castlevania for me was like my side of mashed potatoes. Didn't take me long to enjoy it, but I really enjoyed it. I'm thinking of trying to work on a bigger game to cover on the podcast that'll be my hearty steak. And at the same time, I'll have my side dish. Maybe even a side I've never tried before. Just so if I need to put out an episode that's not a huge time investment, but still good quality, I can work on one of those and have something to you every Thursday while I munch on my bigger steak. Now, that's the key and something I want to reiterate. The side dish analogy I'm using shouldn't devalue that game or the episode. I just need some sides on my dish so I can work through those while I go back and work on the bigger steaks. Does that make sense? Because, well, I hope so. Because halfway through, I started to get hungry, and I ramble a little bit when I get hungry. So what's on my plate this week? With the time constraints I've had this week with various things popping up in my personal and work lives, I still was able to pick up a new game to me and finally give it a whirl. I wanted something on a handheld to take with me so I could capitalize on chunks of downtime when I could. I went back to my first handheld love, the Game Boy Advance, and I fired up Metroid Zero Mission. As of the recording of this intro, I'm only about halfway through it, I think, but once I started playing it, I really couldn't put it down. That's another reason I want to take this plate of steak and side dish approach. Along with never playing a Castlevania game until a couple weeks ago, I've never played any of the Metroid games either. If I didn't make it clear in a past episode, it was the Sony PlayStation and games like Resident Evil, Final Fantasy VII, Parasite Eve, Tomb Raider, Metal Gear Solid, and all the others that really propelled me down the path of a gamer. I had good memories with the Nintendo and the Super Nintendo, but my exposure to their vast libraries are limited at best. Once I do make time for these games, I've been loving every second. So to that end, Metroid Zero Mission will most likely get an episode of the podcast. From what I recall, it's a remake of the original Metroid for the NES, with better visuals and a modernized soundtrack. I think I'll be able to finish it in the coming days so I can start building an episode around it, but no guarantee it's going to be the next episode. As I record this intro, I don't want to assume it'll be done by next week. We all know what assuming does. Something about asses and me, but whatever. I'm also working through Final Fantasy VII again for a future episode as well. I've been playing that on the go on my PlayStation Vita, and it has been an absolute blast going down that rabbit hole again. One more I've considered getting back into is on my PlayStation Portable. Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII is another one that I'm eager to do a podcast on at some point. If any of you are on top of any gaming news at all, you may have heard that Square Enix is remaking slash remastering Crisis Core with a release date somewhere in late 2022 as of this recording. Crisis Core, which is exclusive to the PSP, serves as a prequel to Final Fantasy VII and follows the adventures of Zack Fair, a soldier second class who has aspirations of becoming a hero one day. He's joined by many familiar characters in the series, and it was truly a wonderful game in terms of its story, presentation, and gameplay. I can't tell you how excited I am to play the remake slash remaster later this year. While I know Final Fantasy VII isn't the greatest RPG of all time, really, it's my favorite, and there isn't much in the compilation of the series that I won't try. So I thought it would be cool to replay and cover the original Crisis Core on the podcast just in time for the new one to come out later this year. We'll just have to see if the stars align. Other than that, games like Toe Jam and Earl, Twisted Metal, and others are on the radar as well. 
At one point, I had a call out on my Facebook page if anyone had any suggestions of games that they'd like covered. Those are all still on my mind, so another huge thank you to those that threw out some of the games that they love. Is there a game that you'd like me to cover on the Retro Wildlands? Well, you could reach out to us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. My Twitter and Gram handle are at Retro Wildlands. On any of those platforms, feel free to drop me a line and let me know your thoughts on the show, or if you have a game that you might want covered. Most games in between the original Nintendo and the PS4, Xbox One era of games are on the table, as I have the means to play most of those consoles. A couple of consoles that are off the table include systems like the TurboGrafx, Sega Saturn, Neo Geo, and the Nintendo Wii. I'm sure I could hop on the old pirate ship if I really wanted to, but I completely miss these consoles growing up, and I don't think I have a desire to journey there, at least at this point. Either way, hit me up on social media if you have a super special game that you'd like me to talk about. If you follow any of our pages, we'll follow you back. I'll like the photos that you post of your dinner, and I'll retweet your video clips of your pet hermit crabs. It'll be great. Okay, I think that's enough flapping my gums. It's time to talk about Silent Hill for the Sony PlayStation. Released in 1999, Silent Hill redefined the survival horror genre by putting more of an emphasis on psychological horror than past titles like Resident Evil. It puts you as the player in a situation that you can't really make any sense out of. Things around you don't make sense. You start questioning what you're seeing. Where are all the monsters coming from? What's up with all this fog? Why are all the people I meet batshit crazy? And why does the world seem to get darker whenever those sirens go off? Well, grab your map, your flashlight, and your steel pipe over there. Let's follow Harry Mason as we try to answer the one and only question that truly matters. Have you seen a little girl just turned seven last month, short, black hair? My daughter. As I was sitting on the couch watching the opening CGI cutscene unfold that served as the opening to Silent Hill, I had absolutely no idea what was in store. All I knew about this game is it was another M-rated PlayStation game that my stepfather let me play alongside him, and that was good enough for me. We mostly played it together after dinner, and we made it a point to turn the lights off and crank up the surround sound. As we played through the game, it was evident a notepad and pencil would help us immensely. I think we passed the controller between us now and again, but I was all-time note-taker. Looking back, there was no way we were going to finish this game on our own. We needed each other, and together, we saw Silent Hill to the end. That was over 20 years ago, and Silent Hill is one of my favorite games because of the time my stepdad and I spent together with it. The journey we took, and the things we saw, and the nightmares I had, I wouldn't trade them for anything. Ultimately. If I could summarize the original Silent Hill up in just a single word, that word would be a journey. Even to non-gamers, the Silent Hill franchise is pretty well known. 
My wife, who actually is not a big fan of scary things or suspenseful anythings, watched the movie adaptation of Silent Hill and actually really liked it. You know, the one with, uh, ah, what's her face? Radha Mitchell and Sean Bean that was released in 2006. That it sounds correct. You can't deny Silent Hill is something special. And back when it was released on the PlayStation in 99, it absolutely cemented itself in history as one of the greatest video games of all time with its different take on the survival horror genre. Just a few years prior, Resident Evil from Capcom burst onto the scene with a -a one-of-a-kind gameplay experience that puts you in the shoes of either Chris Redfield or Jill Valentine, members of the Raccoon Police Department's STARS unit, to investigate grisly murders in the mountain region outside of the city. You're led into a mansion where you discover zombies and other monsters roaming the halls. You're tasked with finding a way to escape the mansion, and you uncover bits of the mystery surrounding the mansion and the existence of the monsters as you go about it. Your characters are trained in firearms and hand-to-hand combat, and while the ammunition that you need is scarce, you're trained to take care of yourself. You know what your enemy is, and you find out pretty quick where they come from. Your objective is clear from the beginning, and it doesn't change as you progress. And when the game is over, the ending is pretty clear-cut at that point. In Silent Hill, you're just a regular person with no combat training who is thrust into a situation he can barely make any sense of. While you have an objective, everything else around you isn't clear. What exactly are you fighting? Are they monsters? Your own imagination? Maybe your own fears? While Silent Hill is also considered a survival horror game, producer Konami and the development team over at Team Silent took a completely different approach when it came to the horror aspect. They put a big emphasis on psychological horror. Resident Evil had tension and scary moments, and a couple of jump scares sprinkled in for good measure, but where Silent Hill excelled was getting inside your head and making you question things. You would question what you thought you saw. You would question what you thought you heard. Even go so far as to question how you feel. Hopefully this little morsel gets you just a little bit excited about this game because I am excited to talk about it. Before we get into it though, I want to talk about spoilers for the game. Some of my memories I want to share and experiences I had with this game won't have nearly the impact if I don't talk about some of the story elements of the game or some of the specific moments that happen. The story in Silent Hill is an interesting mystery to uncover, even if I didn't fully understand it way back when, and some of the standout moments of the game are best experienced in-game with no indication that they're about to happen. I'm not talking about jump scares, but just moments that could potentially be ruined on the podcast. I know the game is over 20 years old at this point, but I'll never forget how I felt playing this game for the very first time. And if you can, I want you to experience that. So here's how the flow of this show is going to go. Anything spoiler-related will be in the second half of the episode. Anything spoiler-free will be in the first half. Once we get to spoiler territory, I will give you ample warning and plenty of time to stop the podcast. This way, if you want to get an idea of what the game is before diving into it, I'll do my best to do that part some justice. Otherwise, if you don't care about the spoilers, or if you've played Silent Hill before, stick around during the spoiler talk because I have been dying to share some story moments with some people. Okay, let's dive in. So, what is this game? 
Silent Hill is a third-person survival horror game that is one part exploration, one part puzzle solving, and one part combat. We control Harry Mason. He and his daughter Cheryl are on the way to the town of Silent Hill for a vacation. On the way, Harry sees a girl standing in the middle of the road. He quickly swerves to avoid hitting her, but doing so causes a huge crash and Harry is knocked unconscious. When he wakes up, the first thing he notices is Cheryl is missing. Panicking like any good father would, Harry jumps out of his vehicle and starts to look for his daughter. You're in Silent Hill at this point, and you almost don't even notice the fog and the fact that it's snowing out of season. Harry hears footsteps, and when he rounds a corner, he sees Cheryl moving down the road. At this point, the game gives us control of Harry directly. Cheryl is running towards an alley, and really, your first instinct is to follow her. Right away, the game establishes the main objective and hammers it home fast. Find Cheryl. Find your daughter. I won't spoil what happens here exactly, maybe later in the episode, but as Harry eventually reaches a dead end, he falls unconscious and darkness descends on the town. When Harry wakes up, he's greeted by a police officer from the town of Brams, which is the next town over. Her name is Sybil Bennett. The two of them quickly come to a realization that something is very wrong with Silent Hill. Harry is quick to ask Sybil if he's seen his daughter, and Sybil unfortunately hasn't. Sybil decides she's going to leave and go get backup, but Harry insists on continuing the search for his daughter. If it's as dangerous outside as Sybil claims it is, Harry needs to find Cheryl and find her fast. Before Sybil turns to leave, she hands Harry a handgun for protection once she realizes he didn't have a gun on him or anything else to protect him. Real quick, young me never really batted an eye at this exchange. I mean, you have to get your first weapon to defend yourself somehow, so why not from a cop? Adult me, on the other hand, thought this was sort of funny that a police officer just hands over their sidearm to a civilian they've never met, claiming to be looking for their daughter that they don't even know for sure even exists, but I digress. It's at this point when you take control of Harry that the game truly begins, and it's up to you to figure out how to find Cheryl. What makes Silent Hill special in this way is it doesn't really hold your hand all that much. When you have control of Harry again inside the diner that you're currently in, a complete search of the premises reveals a few items that will help you down the road. There's a couple of health drinks that, upon further examination in the menu screen, heal Harry's health if he's taken any damage. Also found is a kitchen knife. It looks pretty weak, but when you mess with it a little bit by equipping it and giving it a good swing, you can swing it pretty fast, and maybe it'll serve as a good backup to your handgun. Spoiler alert, the knife sucks donkey balls, but moving on. Then you come across a map of the specific area of Silent Hill that you're currently in. The map shows the streets and a couple landmarks. Once you check the map out, Harry highlights the alleyway on the map where you originally saw Cheryl when you first got into Silent Hill. It's a good place to start, so even though the game doesn't really hold your hand, it gives you an objective by highlighting it on the map. How and when you go to that location is up to you, but we'll touch on that part of the gameplay a little later. You also find a pocket radio. You find out very quickly that the radio is probably going to be the most useful item other than the map. The game teaches you pretty quick that the radio will emit static when a monster is around you somewhere. This is what you're going to use to get a feel for danger and potentially plan your route through the open streets of Silent Hill. 
When indoors, you can't really use the radio to avoid monsters in tight spaces, but oftentimes, you can't see what's in the room due to the angle the camera is facing or how dark the room is, so it's useful in its own right that way. If you want a true challenge, go ahead and turn off the radio and see how that helps. Once you collect all your supplies, you're on your own. Like I mentioned before, the game marks your objective location on the map, but it's up to you to get there. As you explore Silent Hill, you'll quickly discover that some roads may not be passable and other obstacles exist. As you come across these obstructions, Harry updates the map to reflect this, which is probably my favorite little detail of the entire game. As you move to interior locations like the elementary school or the hospital, you can find maps for those locations and Harry updates those maps as well. If you come across a door you can't open, Harry will draw a squiggly line through it. If the door is locked and can be opened with either a key or unlatching it from the other side, he'll draw a solid line. Doors that open with no issue will see Harry draw an arrow going through it. Other things are added to the map like points of interest too. It's fantastic for exploring, especially since a lot of the areas aren't too distinct. The hospital, for instance, has several floors and each floor looks identical in presentation and layout. You're going to be opening and referencing the map a ton as you play. As you explore, monsters of all kinds will be found roaming the streets of Silent Hill and in the locations you travel to. You'll need to combat them or avoid them as you look for Cheryl. Now this is the one area of the game that is in stark contrast to the Resident Evil series during this time period. Like I mentioned before, Harry is not trained in the usage of firearms or melee weapons. He is not in the same physical shape as a member of special forces. He's what you call an everyman. This will become very apparent as you engage monsters that stand in your way. Now I don't mean to say that Harry is ineffective at combat and unable to defend himself. He absolutely is. What you'll find out is Harry doesn't have pinpoint accuracy with a firearm, and he's rather clumsy when he swings a melee weapon around. Let's take the handgun as an example. When you engage a monster up close, Harry generally lands most of his shots. When he's further away, his accuracy decreases pretty dramatically, so it's not always enough to line up the shot, which the game usually does automatically, I might add. Other weapons like the hunting rifle have similar considerations to keep in mind. While the rifle is quite powerful and more accurate at longer ranges, it's very cumbersome, takes time to aim, and takes a lot of time to fire. It has decent kickback as well from what I remember, and it does not do well in close quarters encounters. It's up to you to experiment a little with the firearms you find and determine their effectiveness relative to Harry's handling of them. If you can do that, Harry can actually be a pretty formidable force with the right firearm in hand for the situation. Melee weapons are another side of the offensive coin you need to consider. It's easy to see why you might want to use a melee weapon in a game like this, and that's to conserve your ammunition for your various firearms. Which is a viable strategy, but you need to be very cautious here if you decide to use this strategy. Again, Harry is just an average dude, so he's not the quickest to swing most of the weapons you find, with the exception of the knife, which is super fast and about as useless as a white crayon. A good melee weapon to use would be something like the steel pipe, or lead pipe, pipe, whatever. It has a long reach and does decent damage. However, it's a little cumbersome to swing, and the wind-up animation could take a solid second, so you have to time your swing just right. 
I found when I started playing through Silent Hill way back with my stepdad, I really favored melee weapons. I mean, Resident Evil taught me that ammo was a sacred resource that should be accumulated, savored, and worshipped. The problem with that in Silent Hill is I was not good at melee combat at all. I would defeat a dog monster by chasing it down and hitting it with the pipe when it lunged at me, but that was after I took four hits by it and lost half my health. I eventually got decent enough with them, but when I replayed the game recently, I decided to rely more so on firearms this time. And really, I was never hard up for ammo all that often. One thing I didn't really touch on regarding the exploration now that I think about it was the fact that items such as additional health drinks and oftentimes more ammo can be found if you travel off the beaten path. It's sort of a risk-reward kind of endeavor. You're more than likely going to run into more monsters as you explore off the path, but if you can find more items to line your pockets, you'll be much better off. I did this a lot when I replayed the game, and I felt pretty good from a resource standpoint. Other than the monsters you're going to fight as you make your way through Silent Hill, you're also going to come across some pretty challenging puzzles. While some puzzles are nothing more than finding an item to combine with another item to reveal the actual item you need to move forward, most of the actual puzzles that stand out are probably better described as riddles. In some cases, you're going to have to look for clues in the area that you're in and perform an action based on those clues. And when I say area, I don't always mean the same room. Sometimes there are clues in other rooms that you have to take back to the area you need to perform the action. One example would be the piano puzzle in the elementary school. Now, if you don't want to hear anything about this puzzle, I would skip ahead about two to three minutes. When you walk into the room where this puzzle is located, there's a blackboard on the wall and a grand piano in the middle of the room. The keys on the piano aren't exposed right away, but they are exposed as you progress in other aspects of the area that you're in. If you examine the blackboard, you're presented with a riddle. The first three lines read this. First flew the greedy pelican, eager for the reward, white wings flailing. Then came a silent dove, flying beyond the pelican as far as he could. A raven flies in, flying higher than the dove, just to show he can. There's more, but that's the general gist. If you examine the piano, there's blood smeared over a few of the piano keys, and you discover you can play the piano by selecting specific keys. So what's the riddle here? Most of us probably already know, but a piano's keys are mostly white, but there are smaller black ones in there too. A dove and pelican are white, a raven is black, do you get it? The birds in the riddle are the keys on the piano, and you have to figure out based on the riddle what keys to press and in what order. It seems simple in practice, but it took my stepdad and I a good couple hours. I mean, we were not that smart when it came to this sort of thing, but I argue the riddle was pretty hard, so whatever. Because the riddle itself was six lines long, and examining the blackboard in-game only showed two lines at a time, we wrote out the entire riddle on a notepad and used that to work through it. We drew the keys of a piano on paper and kept track of the combinations we tried. Eventually we got it, and it was so rewarding when we did. There were a couple other puzzles sort of like this, but the piano puzzle is a great example of what lay ahead for you. The nice thing was, even though we spent so much time on riddles and puzzles, they seemed to fit in the context of the game in such a way that the pacing of the game didn't feel like it came to a halt or anything. 
Putting a puzzle in for the sake of it can be a jarring experience, but these felt like they belonged and they were a welcome addition. Even replaying Silent Hill today, I didn't get queasy thinking of all the puzzles I had to solve. I welcomed it. Alright, so we're going to get to some of the major spoilers in a little bit, and I'm going to start sharing some of my memories with this game at that point, but we have a little bit more ground I want to cover to finish setting the table. Let's shift gears and talk about the game's presentation. The gameplay and all of that before is a good, solid part of this overall experience but the presentation is where it really shines. Visually speaking, for a PlayStation-era game, the game looks pretty solid. One thing you'll notice immediately is how fog effects and darkness are used as you're working your way through the areas of Silent Hill. A decent amount of you listening may already know this, but the fog effect that's used in the town itself in-game was done so as a way to hide the fact that the PlayStation could only render so much of the environment at once. I think the term is draw distance. It's the maximum distance from a centralized point that objects can be rendered on screen. Typically that central point is the player. I'm assuming that's accurate, I'm just making an educated guess here. Because the draw distance wasn't very far, it would look incredibly choppy to the player and be very immersion breaking. This probably isn't how it actually happened, but I can imagine Konami programmers trying to figure out what to do with this issue, and someone was like, I got it. What gives off a creepy atmosphere and you can't see through it? Fucking fog. And that was it. Not only was it a fantastic idea from a programming standpoint, it created an environment that is iconic even to this day. I argued that you don't need to have played the game to understand how fog connects to it. I remember my wife and I were driving somewhere one morning and there was an open field to our right as we were driving down the road. She looked out at it and said, Hey, it looks like Silent Hill over there. To my knowledge, she knew nothing of the actual game and hadn't watched the movie adaptation yet. It was pretty awesome to hear her say that. The fog does so much more than just project a visually creepy atmosphere. It gets in your head, too. You have no idea what's in it. Sure, you have your trusty radio and can get an idea when a monster is around, but they can still be concealed by that fog. It's also very easy to get lost in and turned around. Your vision is limited, and that can really take its toll on you. At least, it did for me when I played it. I've never been in a huge fog in real life, but the best way to describe it is when I'm not wearing my glasses or contacts. My vision is straight-up garbage, just to put it in context. I remember taking my contacts out one night and my glasses weren't where I thought I left them. I wasn't able to find them for several hours. I could barely see in front of me and, worst yet, it was past midnight by the time I found them so it was dark in areas of the house. Ugh, even with the lights on, I felt like I was just drifting aimlessly and I got frustrated when I couldn't interact with things like the glass on the coffee table or plug my phone into the charger. I'm nearsighted, so I had to hold things up stupid close to my face. I mean, it sounds like a dumb comparison, but when I can't see what I'm doing and I can't interact with things, it gives me just a little bit of anxiety. And I have to imagine that's how being trapped in a thick fog with no end feels. At least that's how I felt sometimes in the game itself. I'd always make it a point to stay to one side of the road so I could always see a building and use that as a pathway forward. Now the darkness in this game was something else as well. When the lights go out and darkness falls, it acts a lot like the fog from a gameplay standpoint. 
Whether you're outdoors or inside, the darkness is fully enveloping. What you do find early on, and I forgot to mention you find it alongside your map and radio, is a flashlight that Harry can put in his breast pocket. That flashlight is your only way to see in the dark, and the lighting effects for the time were second to none. I could be mistaken, but I think this is one of the first games to use lighting like this. The light coming out of the flashlight didn't just illuminate the surrounding area, it specifically lit up what was directly in front of it. That doesn't seem like such a big deal now, but back then it was a unique gameplay element. The light itself didn't go forever. Like a real pocket flashlight, it had limited reach. And just like a real flashlight, if you shine a light on something in front of you, what's directly behind it won't be lit up. So the light obeys the laws of the universe. Eh, mostly. But not only was it so cool to see it in action, it really helped set the atmosphere. Objects you couldn't see wouldn't just appear, they'd slowly come into the light as you walk towards it. This was especially true about monsters. In darkness, you could barely see them unless the flashlight was upon them. Which reminds me of an interesting game mechanic. You can actually turn your flashlight off by pressing the circle button, I think it was. While your vision is severely impaired at this point, there are some monsters that won't notice you and may ignore you completely if you put enough distance between them and you walk past them. It's great for avoiding needless encounters. I personally didn't use this mechanic all that much, I was too much of a wuss to try to sneak past them, but I loved that it was an option. Aside from the fog and the darkness, what really puts a nice cherry on top of the atmosphere is the soundtrack. It's very dark, very brooding, and extremely unnerving. It's very ambient and creates a tension that very few games can rival. It can also be disorienting in some spots too. Not in a way that the soundtrack is annoying, but disorienting in a way that you're kind of lost in a fog. It's hard to describe exactly what I mean, but you have to trust me on this. And where the soundtrack excels in setting the mood, it excels just as well when it's not being used. Some areas are completely silent, and all you hear are the sounds of your own footsteps on the ground. Now one criticism I do have for other games in this genre, even Resident Evil, is that they can become sort of predictable. Example, in Resident Evil, zombies will appear in specific rooms and specific spots. While the camera might obstruct them, you have a better sense of where they are. The gameplay becomes very predictable, and you settle into a routine. The mansion is where you spend most of the game, and it becomes less and less scary and intimidating as you slowly conquer it by clearing out all the enemies and unlocking all the areas you want to explore. You get comfortable, and maybe a little complacent. That rarely becomes the case in Silent Hill. You never know when monsters will appear in the streets, and even though monsters can appear indoors, it's often dark and you just can't see them. Your light goes just a bit beyond arm's length, but not much further. You'll hear what's around you well before you actually see it. And what's more, you might even hear sounds of things lurking, but you never do actually see them. I walked into a restroom, and as I rounded the corner, the sobs of a child could be heard. Then they abruptly stopped, and all you heard was... silence. In games like Resident Evil, if something made a noise, you could see it and you could confront it. Such isn't always the case in Silent Hill. It's things like that that always keep you on edge. You can never settle into a routine. You can never really conquer a location, even if you kill everything in it. The atmosphere will always make you think there's something out there, 
something just beyond the light. It's watching you, waiting for you to come within its reach. That is why this game is such a masterpiece in presentation. Now the last thing I want to touch on are the game's controls before we dive into spoiler territory. The only real flaw or gripe I have with the game are the controls. The environment is rendered in 3D, so the camera tends to float around Harry as you're moving him around. It mainly stays behind him, but depending on what's in the environment and what obstructions are around, the camera may swing in front of him or off to the side. It can be even more frustrating in a narrow hallway or a small room. It's not the worst thing, but you can press the L2 button to center the camera behind you if it gets a little squirrely, but it doesn't always work the way you want it to. It's a minor gripe in the grand scheme of things, though. Some will argue it makes the game a little bit more intense, but you can also argue it's just annoying and hard to manage. Personally, I was indifferent. Spamming the L2 button generally kept the camera behind me where I wanted it, and rarely did I find myself in a bad position where the camera was the cause for my demise. As far as moving Harry around, it's pretty easy to get him around places, but he does feel a little clunky at times. Silent Hill uses tank controls, much like Resident Evil does. What that means is, pressing up on the directional button makes Harry move forward relative to the position he's facing instead of the camera's position. Left or right on the directional button will just turn Harry in that direction. He doesn't actually move in that direction. It's not nearly as cumbersome as Resident Evil was since that game had pre-rendered backgrounds. Since you're in a 3D environment in Silent Hill and you have the ability to move the camera behind you with the push of a shoulder button, it wasn't nearly as bad. And I personally love tank controls, so while the controls are certainly dated, I had very little issues with them, but still. Clunky, I think is the best way to describe the whole experience altogether. And with that, I think I've captured everything I wanted to talk about regarding this game that isn't story-related or an experience spoiler. So to finish off the podcast, the protective film is coming off and we're going to talk a bit about the story as I understand it, and I'm going to share some of the stories that my stepdad and I shared playing this game way back when. So this is it. This is your final warning. If you've never played this game and don't want any of the story or certain events spoiled for you, you have until the music stops to head on out. If you do head on out, thank you for listening. I really do appreciate you giving me the time and listening to the podcast up to this point. And I hope you enjoyed me recanting this amazing game. Alright, now let's talk about all the juicy bits of Silent Hill. So when my stepdad and I played Silent Hill, we eventually beat it and saw one of the endings the game has to offer. At that point though, we were just happy to have finished the game. When the credits began to roll and we tried to process the story for the first time, we more or less came to the same conclusion. We had no fucking idea what just happened. Today, however, the story makes much more sense to me, but I'll be the first to admit that it was because of the internet, wiki pages, and Reddit that really helped me put the pieces of the story together in such a way that made mostly some sense. Now hang on tight for this one, because it's about to get weird. The biggest takeaway regarding the story is that Cheryl, Harry's daughter, who is adopted by the way, 
is actually part of another person referenced in the story, Alessa Gillespie. Now, if there happen to be any diehard Silent Hill fans listening right now, I'm probably going to fuck some of this shit up. Anyway, dating many years into the past, a cult calling themselves the Order tried to use Alessa Gillespie to give birth to their god into our world. This required a ritual that set her on fire. In order to prevent the birth of God, Alessa was able to split her soul in two. The second piece of her soul was manifest as a baby, a baby that Harry Mason and his late wife would come across in the outskirts of Silent Hill. They named that little girl Cheryl. Alessa was able to prevent the birth of God, but the seed of God lied dormant within her. She was badly burned in the fire ritual, but she remained alive. The Order kept Alessa alive over the years. Alessa was able to somehow get Harry and Cheryl back to Silent Hill some seven years later. The internet says she cast a spell or something that compelled Cheryl to want to go to the town, and she somehow convinced Harry to take her there, so we're gonna go with that. Once Harry and Cheryl arrive, Alessa projects an image of herself on the road, causing Harry to swerve and crash the car. The intent was to rejoin herself with Cheryl, becoming whole again. This would allow her the ability to die, since her mother, Dahlia, and other members of the Order were previously keeping her alive to one day try and use her to birth God. Are you keeping up so far? Now once Cheryl enters Silent Hill though, Alessa's psychic powers start to manifest, which is where the fog comes from. And more than that, Alessa, who is still bedridden after all these years and in constant pain, projects that torment into the real world, and that's where the other world comes in. I didn't talk about the other world up to this point, but now's the perfect time, I think. You get your first glimpse at the other world pretty early in the game. In the distance, you hear sirens, kind of like the sound during an air raid. The first time the other world descends on you, it's almost subtle. You can almost barely hear the sirens in the distance. As the game progresses, the sirens get louder, and times when you're thrust into this world become much more intense. And Harry even mentions out loud how things feel more painful, and how it feels as though the fabric of things around him is actually changing. At one point, Harry is quoted saying, Rather than from a reality shifting into a nightmare, this is more like reality becoming a nightmare. Visually speaking, the other world is a dark, rusty, and bloody place. Typically what that means for the gameplay is you have a normal location, then you have its other world equivalent. Take the elementary school and the hospital. When you solve all the riddles and find your way through the school, the world transforms and the other world descends upon it. Now you have to navigate through the dark version of the school. If you reopen your map, you'll find that all the marks that Harry left on it are gone. It really is like a brand new place. Doors that opened before don't open anymore. Pathways that were clear may be obstructed. New enemies may be roaming around in the darkness, too. It's a really awesome concept. When I was younger, the other world genuinely made the hairs on the back of my neck stand on edge. Probably goes without saying, but the other world was enveloped in complete darkness, so you only had your flashlight to rely on for guidance. The soundtrack, which was still pretty ambient, shifted to a more metallic, industrial type of ambience, and it made the world much more menacing. 
just being in it made you feel anxious. A couple of my favorite Otherworld moments happened in the school. I remember walking through a classroom and there was an old school telephone on the table. You examine it and Harry comments that there's no dial tone or the phone doesn't work. As you turn to leave the room, the phone starts to ring and it rings loudly. I was working the controller during that scene and it startled me so much I dropped it on the ground. The game took over and Harry walked over to the phone and he picked it up. On the other end was the voice of Cheryl. She was alive and she was pleading for help. She sounded really scared. As soon as we're registering what's happening, the line goes dead and you hear that tone you hear when a landline disconnects. Harry hangs up the phone and... silence. The game gives you back control and you move on. It was so eerie. I remember looking up at my stepdad and we both just said nothing. What was there to say? Another moment in the school that sticks out in my mind was the locker room area. In the normal version of the school, you enter a locker room and you hear something banging like you're stuck. As you round the corner, you see one of the smaller footlocker doors moving as the banging continues. You don't want to, but you know you have to open it. As soon as Harry reaches his hand up to open the door, a cat bursts out. Ah, fucking cat! It scampers away, and right as our heart rate begins to settle, you hear these inhuman sounds and the cat just screams. It sounded like a monster off-screen got a hold of the cat. I shivered, but I thought that was the end of it. Good jump scare, haha, <laughs> you got me. But then you come across the same locker room in the other world. Once you enter it, you hear the same noises. Something banging like it's stuck. As you round the corner, the same footlocker door is moving back and forth. This time, though, blood seems to be seeping out from behind the door. You don't want to, but you know you have to open it. As soon as Harry reaches his hand to open the door, the door stops moving. After a brief moment, the door creaks open to reveal... nothing inside. You get control of Harry back and that's it. I remember letting out a sigh of relief, and then I turned to leave the room, not a care in the world. And then BAM! A dead body falls out of a full-size locker. My controller met the ground yet again, and it took me a minute to pick it back up. I don't remember if my stepdad jumped too, and if I asked him today, he'd probably say he didn't. But adult me, who played this game again before recording this podcast, definitely jumped. I completely forgot about this part. I mean, I didn't jump as high and my controller stayed in my hands this time, but yeah, it fucking got me, God damn it. I don't think there were many other jump scares like that, though. Oh, for those of you who've played this game, who remembers those little child ghost apparition things in the school? You can't see them until you shine your light on them, and they just make the radio go nuts, so you're frantically trying to figure out what monster is in your immediate vicinity, and then you hear it. This super loud, super sharp squeak. Like, what in the hell? Then when you see the little ghost thing on the ground wobbling around, it's like, oh, it's just you. Fuck off, ghost child. <laughs> they don't hurt you or anything, but it's an interesting addition to the scary atmosphere. Now, if there's one spot in the game that's stuck with me over the years, it's the refrigerator with the monster in it. When I replayed Silent Hill recently, I didn't get a chance to finish the game before recording this, so this part is strictly from memory. So if I get some details wrong, it is what it is. You come across this fridge. The doors are closed, but there are two chains hanging off the doors that aren't connected. 
It's pretty out of place where it's set up in the room. I think it was like right in the middle of it. I also can't remember if you get any indicator if there's anything in the fridge, but there it is, right in front of you. Some sort of monster is in the fridge. I don't recall what the trigger was specifically, but if you move past the fridge and try to go into the next area, a tentacle or something shoots out from the bottom of the fridge and grabs Harry's leg. He falls over, and while he's kicking and screaming, he's pulled right into the fridge. The screen fades to black as Harry is screaming. Then the game over screen pops up, and that's it. I was fucking traumatized once the realization of what happened set in. I stared at the screen, mouth hanging open. It just chilled me to the bone. And Harry's scream, I don't know what it was, but it just stuck with me. Man, it's giving me the willies just thinking about it. Now I've got one more story to share before I wrap up the episode. Later in the game, you come across this puzzle I can best describe as the Zodiac puzzle. There are pictures of Zodiac signs. Libra, Pisces, Aries, and Cancer, for instance. You have to put the correct numbers below each Zodiac sign, and if you do that correctly, you get access to a key item you're looking for. But what are the numbers and how do you come across them? You have absolutely nothing to go off of. Just the pictures of the Zodiac signs. So for Cancer, you have a picture of a crab. Aries has a picture of a ram. And that's all you got. Go do the puzzle. Now, I mentioned this puzzle in episode zero of the Retro Wildlands, but it literally took my stepdad and I three days to solve this puzzle. For two straight nights, we would throw theories back and forth. We did trial and error, all the while keeping track of what we tried on paper. Now, each day was probably just a couple hours of gameplay, just to point that out. Now, on day three, I remember staring at the Cancer Crab. Then I switched to the Ares Ram. To this day, I don't know how this came to me, but I took notice of how many appendages each animal had. The crab had eight legs and two arms, so ten. The ram had four, four legs. Holy shit, that was it! Under the key item, there was Sagittarius, four legs, two arms, so six. Taurus, the bull, four legs. Then Gemini, two people, four arms, four legs, total of eight. I entered in those numbers. Six, four, eight. Click. The key item dropped. Then the clouds parted, the sun shone down upon us, and a choir of the most angelic angels began to sing. My stepdad and I high-fived and I felt like a million bucks. This right here, I mean, it sounds dumb, But it's by far one of my favorite gaming memories ever. Hell, it's one of my favorite memories, period. Still makes me smile thinking about it. We entered Silent Hill with no sense of where we're going and what's going on. But in that moment, we made Silent Hill our bitch. (sighs) And with that, I think we've hit the end of the foggy trail. All the memories aside, Silent Hill, even after 20 years, remains the gold standard when it comes to psychological horror games, and in some ways, even adventure games as a whole. Silent Hill finds a way to make you want to explore and find all its secrets, and it has a way of never making you feel like you're ever safe. It makes you feel vulnerable and exposed, 
but it can also make you feel empowered. Just when you think you have it all figured out and you get comfortable, the world itself changes all around you and robs you of any sense of security or conquest. You're just a visitor here, and an unwelcome one, and the world around you will see you suffer. If not physically suffer, it will send you down a spiral of mental anguish. It will make you question what you think you know, what you think you saw, especially the noises you think you heard. Silent Hill offers an experience that sticks with you for many years. Much like the residents within, or those that visit the town, you leave with a piece of it forever buried within you. Well, that's if you ever leave at all. Episode 7 of the Retro Wildlands, Silent Hill for the Sony PlayStation. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to the show today. I really appreciate it. It was an absolute blast going back to that haunted town and reliving some of the memories that made it so special to me. For many gamers, including myself, it sits proudly at the top of our favorite games of all times list. Over 20 years later, I feel like it still holds up against some of the best games of our generation. If you like the podcast and want to show it or myself some support, please leave a good review on your podcasting service of choice or drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and let me know what you think. You can also help spread the word and tell your friends about the Retro Wildlands or, better yet, tell the people in line with you at the grocery store while you wait for that one person to figure out how to work the self-checkout counter, then screws it up by double-scanning something and needs assistance to fix his fuck-up. Nine out of ten times, that person is me, but it's a great chance for you to share this podcast. So what's coming down the pipeline next week? There are a couple of candidates for our next episode, but I'm not entirely sure what game I'm going to run with next week. So I'll do the sleazy thing this week and have you keep an eye on our social media feeds for updates on what's coming out next Thursday. I have a couple games I'm working on that I played when I was little, and a couple I've picked up for the first time that I'm really digging right now. We'll just have to see where the trail takes us. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. <laughs>